Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today's episode of Something to Wrestle With is brought to you by fight.tv forward slash StarCast. Head on over right now if you haven't already to find out about the ultimate VIP experience brought to you by our friends at wrestling travel travel you say that's right man maybe you missed your chance at all in tickets maybe the platinum bracelet sold out before you could snag a pair what if there were a second chance you see whenever you pre-order starcast on fight not only will you get 20 live shows not only will you get more than 40 hours of content that you can watch both live or on demand with unlimited replays now you'll be automatically entered into a drawing that we're going to make on August 27th. Now, what do you win? How about round trip airfare to Chicago plus three nights and a hotel suite as if that weren't enough. Platinum bracelets to Starcast, VIP access to the after party, an eat and greet every single day, every official meet and greet, but best of all, two front row tickets to all in. You can't buy this. This is priceless. But you're automatically entered to win this ultimate StarCast experience right now whenever you pre-order. And what a great value. Not only do you get all these shows, you get $20 back in fight credit. Hey, you can use that towards all in. Get all the details right now at fight.tv forward slash StarCast. That's F-I-T-E dot TV forward slash StarCast. And don't forget, there's two R's in StarCast. Hurry, this contest ends August 27th. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great. I'm impressed. You remember how to start the show this week. Well, uh, we'll call it a streak, man. I am looking forward to talking about this topic with you. We've got SummerSlam 1998 on deck, but this weekend, we've got SummerSlam coming to you directly in New York City. And Bruce, we're going to be there at Gramercy Theater and man, how about once upon a time we used to piggyback WWE shows. Now that well, some bitches are piggybacking us, <laughs> Walk with Elias is happening right at the Gramercy Theater right after us. Seriously, how much more fun can your Saturday be? Come see Bruce and I. Stick around for Walk with Elias. This is going to be fun. And then go to NXT. It's the ultimate wrestling Saturday, and you can make it happen right now at BrucePritchard.com absolutely and and you know i gotta give a, that's gonna be great because gramercy is like our home away from home new york city some of the greatest fans in the entire world there's only a few tickets left i love it when they send out a ticket alert only a few tickets left which you did earlier this week hurry up because there's only a couple left so if you're watching this listening to this or watching us i'm watching it uh man get them now hurry get them and don't forget to check out our man, Pete Rosenberg at Cheap Heat Live. It's the reunion of Pete and the Masked Man, plus a bunch of surprises. It's going down at Sony Hall on Friday night at 8 p.m. Tickets are available now at Ticketmaster.com. Let's talk about us a little more. 
I can't believe I like you've that. done this. You've um, you've started talking about Australia in 2019. Well, somebody started talking to me, man. You know, on our bucket list, what have you and I talked about? And we've talked about going to different places, doing different things. And almost always the first thing out of our mouth is, boy, if we can only get to Australia. Yeah. I mean, seriously, as a redneck from Alabama, I need to know, does the toilet flush backwards? I mean, I got to find out. Well, the only way to really know for sure, because I think that when you see it on TV, they use some of them fancy Dan toilet flush and reversals. And I think that that's just a gimmick, but we got to go find out for sure. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to be going to the UK. We're going to own the UK in December. So 2019, it's only straight up, mate. That's not a knife. This is a knife. And that's put another shrimp on the Bobby and any other way that I can insult some people stop, down under. Stop embarrassing yourselves. Uh, we are going to embarrass ourselves in San Antonio. Go get your tickets right now. We'll be there next month. We're going to uh, Boston in October. Call Kowloon and ask for those tickets. That's right. Call. You can pick up San Antonio, though, Los Angeles, Winston-Salem, even the UK in December. And I was told that we're not allowed to say UK and include Ireland and Scotland. Originally, they said, if you, if you say UK and it's only England, then you're lying. And then when we started saying... You know, we're going to the UK. They were like, Hey, we're not part of that shit. So I don't, I don't know what's going on over there. I'm a hillbilly from Alabama, but we are coming to Ireland, Scotland, and England. Motherfucker. Get your ticket right now at brucepritchard.com man. And, and the, the main event of the summer, at least for me, no disrespect to SummerSlam. Starcast. Every time we turn around, this thing gets bigger and bigger. When you were here. We actually looked at some clips of comedians who are going to be on the roast. Of course, we've got a who's who of professional wrestling. Some names we can't even announce, but their airfare is booked. They are confirmed. It's going to be something else, but we've got James Madden. We've got Shuley from the Stern show. We've got, uh, Taylor Williamson, who's one of the finalists on America's got talent. We've got Ron Funches. Who's got a comedy central special coming up. And as if that weren't enough, we've got Mike Lawrence who won the roast battle on Comedy Central. And all of these guys were making a special trip to Chicago to bust your ass live on pay-per-view. Starcast on fight is the way to see it. What do you think, Bruce? I think I can whip Taylor's ass. Well, he's going to make you laugh so hard that you might not be very effective. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a little nervous, Conrad. The, uh, I, I don't get nervous often. I really don't care. I'm somewhat fearless in many, many ways. Get a little nervous, buddy. Well, you should be. Uh, the fun is going down. Find out all about it at starcast.com. And don't forget to pre-order because you can watch these shows both live and on demand. There's more than 20 live shows, including a Monday Night War debate with Bruce and Eric Bischoff. But the roast, to me, is the main event. Find out more details at starcast.com. There's two R's in Starcast. Bruce, before we get rolling today on SummerSlam 1998, I want to circle back a couple of weeks because we covered SummerSlam 97 and I sort of assumed that a lot of people who listen to 97 are then just going to listen to 98 later. Cause not everybody hears our show the minute it comes out and you should, but if you don't, and you're listening to them in order, because people are still discovering our show, I wanted to talk about roll tight on that. Martha Hart actually wrote in her book that the injury was supposed to be an injury angle. Now I hadn't really heard that before. 
Uh, here's exactly what was written in the book. Their relationship soured even more during a match in August 97. Owen administered a routine quote unquote tombstone pile driver, a move that is made by picking up an opponent, flipping him upside down and placing his head near your lower thighs before dropping to your knees. It was suggested Owen place Austin's head too low before dropping him. As a result, Austin was left laying on the canvas, claiming to be temporarily paralyzed. The incident kept Austin out of action for an extended period of time. And Owen took a lot of heat from the fans being a seasoned, extremely cautious wrestler. Owen told me he executed the move properly. He would have felt horrible if he had hurt anyone, but he would have owned up if he would have done something wrong. In this case, he suspected Austin was being dishonest. He even told me weeks beforehand, he thought Austin might fake an injury. Either way, Austin was being able to use the incident as a excuse for some time off, or if he truly injured his neck, which surgery would indicate Owen figured the damage could have been done prior to the routine match. Either way, the idea that he injured the WF's biggest superstar didn't help Owen's popularity. A feud was scripted for the two that involved a ridiculous shirt sold at events that read Owen 316. I just broke your neck. Owen became one of the most hated heels in wrestling. So I had never really read that, but we had a friend of the show, Mr. Dudutrucking.com himself, uh, Jeff Jewett, send me those screen grabs. And I, I sort of thought, man, that just sounds like crazy talk. But then I go and I look and I see on September 28th on raw, Owen would injure Dan Severin with the same pile driver that hurt Austin. And in storyline that led to Owen retiring. And then unfortunately we know it led to the return of the blue blazer. Now that wasn't September of 97. It was 98. Either way though, the whole idea that he does the, the tombstone pile driver to his ass, not his knees. And they work an injury angle did happen with Dan Severn. Now you've probably never heard any of this. What's your gut reaction when you hear that? Well, I, you know, uh, listening to it, I don't even know how to respond. Um, no, first of all, yeah, there, he, there's he, not any, there's not any truth to that being an angle or it was a horrible accident. Clearly Didn't, hurt. I mean, he's not faking an injury. He's hurt. Duh. In no way, shape or form. Right. And it was not planned to do an injury angle in that match. The match was designed to get Steve over as the new intercontinental champion. And it was, you know, the beginning of that Steve Austin train man taking off. And, and here's, wow. a, here's the thing that sort of jumped out to me because for years and years, we've all heard that Owen was a great guy. I'm not disputing that by the way. And I'm not a wrestler. So what the fuck do I know? But I am just saying, realistically, we often hear things like what wrestler protocol is. And when you heard a guy, you call him. And when we hear there's this great upstanding guy that everybody loves, Owen Hart, and he hurt a guy and he doesn't call and check on him. That seems a little weird to me. Doesn't it to you? Well, I, and again, I don't know if he did or if he didn't, I I really don't know. None of us know. The only one that knows if he did is going to be Steve and Owen and Owen's not here to tell us. So, you know, I don't know if that did or didn't happen, but I know that the injury was an accident and that was not something that was planned in any way, shape or form. Did we capitalize on it after the fact? Yes, we did. And we use that. We did do the t-shirts with Owen. We, we capitalized on it after the fact, but no, that was not a part of any angle. Steve did not fake that injury. I'm sure that he would have loved to have had, uh, had that be a, an angle, but it wasn't. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, 
doubting for a minute that it was a legitimate, I mean, injury. I mean, I don't think anybody could watch that tape and say, oh, he's working. Uh, but it is sort of interesting because these conspiracy theories pop up, you know, 20 something years later that, Hey, maybe the reason Owen didn't call is because Owen thought it was the storyline, you know, and it was a way, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird, but I'm glad that we have a minute to sort of dig into it. And as we get older, our memories aren't the same and we're not the same. And that's why we're glad that ageless male max is here with their patent pending formula. They've got an ingredient that helps you boost your total testosterone, which is going to promote greater increases in your muscle size and twice the reduction in body fat percentage than just exercise alone. But they also boast an amazing 64% increase in nitric oxide, which comes in handy in the gym and in the bedroom. And this is the product that's going to bring this country back to greatness, at least when it comes to the men of our country. And it's easier than ever with ageless male max. Tell them all about it, Bruce. Well, you can take your manhood to the max by trying your first 30-day bottle absolutely free. Just pay shipping and handling. That's not 10 days, 15 days, 20 days. It is a complete, a full 30-day supply, absolutely free. And all you have to do is text the word SLAM, S-L-A-M, to 797979. Finally. It's a formula that boosts your total testosterone. And if your results with Ageless Male Max are too intense, please decrease use. But for your free bottle, text SLAM to 797979. That's S-L-A-M to 797979. Message and data rates may apply. That is Ageless Male Max. We're getting lots of good feedback from those guys, by the way, I've gotten lots of DMS from guys who are saying they can tell a difference. So thank you for supporting ageless male max. And of course, most of all, thank you for supporting something to wrestle. Now let's talk about something we can all support SummerSlam man. And it's uh, this weekend. So what a better time than to cover SummerSlam 1998 right now. This one went down 20 years ago, man, August 30th, 1998 from Madison square garden. And they're back in New York city, 20 years later, this time though, they're Barclays back then the show did a buy rate of 1.48, which is roughly $6.57 million. And this show's notable because it's the 10 year anniversary of SummerSlam. Of course, the first SummerSlam also in New York, also at Madison square garden. Why do you think, um, you guys decided to do the anniversary shows in New York. Is Vince sort of romantic about anniversaries like that? Because it does feel like, you know, when it comes to WrestleMania one, 10 and 20, all right there in New York. And you know, now this is, has a similar feel here. First SummerSlam, 10 year SummerSlam, 20 year SummerSlam. Yeah, it, it's, it is. And it's something to be said that that's where it all began. So 10 year anniversary, it only makes sense to revisit the original site. And that was Madison square garden plus MSG was the, you know, the granddaddy of them all for so many years. We've covered so many shows from 1998 this year because it is the anniversary year, but I do want to ask, you know, a lot of people feel like 1998 is the biggest year in the history of the WWF. You know, they finally win the ratings war. It's also when they have Mike Tyson show up. Steve Austin has really taken the business to another level. Is it fair to say that, and you were there for a lot of the golden era with Hogan, 87, 88, 89, 90 is 98. The biggest it's ever been for you. I think that 1998 for the wrestling business as a whole was probably one of the biggest 
it probably was the biggest year for the wrestling business. And, you know, 1998 was the time that was the emergence of Stone Cold Steve Austin. That was the emergence of the entire Attitude Era, WWE Attitude, WWF Attitude. So it was times were changing. There were new stars that were emerging and the old guard was kind of, you know, getting left behind. And there were some new kids in town that were making names for themselves and going to become the norm for the next 10 years. So 1998, yeah, it was pivotal, 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 easy for me to say pivotal year in the world of wrestling overall. Our competitors, WCW, they were still doing great as well, but a uh, good time to be in the business. No doubt about it. Um, let's talk about what WCW is doing on the other channel. Um, and this has always been interesting to me. Is it because of the success of Mike Tyson for WrestleMania that you think Bischoff decides to double down? That's the year where he gets Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman in July. And then in August, he gets Jay fucking Leno. So while we're going to talk about a pay-per-view headlined by the undertaker and stone cold, Steve Austin, maybe the most iconic character in the company history versus the hottest character in company history on the other channel. We've got the host of the fucking tonight show wrestling does Bischoff in your opinion, read this wrong and say, well, they're just leveraging celebrity and I can do that. And he goes and looks for the biggest celebrities he can get. Obviously two legitimate athletes, NBA finalists, you know, MVPs, but then a television star. Here's here's what I think the WCW did during this time. I think the WCW did read it wrong. I think they believed that it was Mike Tyson who was the, the one that made the, the shift in the wars and made the shift in popularity. It was utilizing Mike Tyson and utilizing the stars from outside of the wrestling genre to get eyeballs on the business. And then it was the stars that were already there. The, the Austins, the Michaels, the DX, Kane, Undertaker, everybody, the rock coming in. It was everybody underneath that then that people stayed to watch. Whereas I believe that WCW used the outside stars to hopefully get eyeballs, but they were using them to get eyeballs for the stars. And I don't think they properly utilized the outside celebrity to get their guys over. They got the, the celebrity over, but I don't think that they utilized them to the best to get their own talent over and their own product and brand over. So let's talk a little bit about, um, and you, you've, you've talked about this story a little bit, but it's covered here in the observer Meltzer would report the WWF is getting into a new business involving real estate and a story that was carried nationally. Titan sports was part of a conglomerate that were among the top bidders for the Debbie Reynolds hotel and casino in Las Vegas. The group headed by George Simon of Cleveland was the high bid in an auction that only drew six people with a $9 million bid. Simon formed a Cleveland investment group as a joint venture with Titan sports and a bankruptcy judge then turned down the bid because it didn't even cover the hotel's debt to creditors of 11 and a half million. And a second auction was set up with Titan group again, being the top bid at 10.65 million. The idea is to turn it into the WWF hotel. If it all flies, the hotel has been a big money loser for years as have most businesses in that area, as it's close to the convention center but not the strip. 
Reynolds lost her fortune in trying to maintain the business. WWF also placed the high bid in an auction for a restaurant, which would be a WWF cafe type deal at Times Square. But the people running Times Square turned down the WWF's bid because they didn't feel it fit with the image they were trying to revamp the area. Uh, WWE is still, or WWF rather, is still looking for a Manhattan site for a theme restaurant similar to WCW in the way they're opening a Nitro Cafe at Excalibur in Las Vegas. So this, again, interesting. Both companies trying to race to Vegas. You've told the story about getting the phone call before, but tell us again and why it didn't happen. Well, I mean, it did happen. We bought the casino and we were going to make the casino. There were plans drawn up to have a hotel casino in the site of Debbie Reynolds. We were going to raise the Debbie Reynolds Hotel and build a whole brand new hotel and casino. Um, I think that the the timing of it and when all was said and done, getting the gaming licenses, doing everything else that had to be done and other people looking at that site, looking at the property after all was said and done, you had someone that came in and offered a lot more money than what they paid for it. And WWE decided to, to sell the property because it, it made more money and it made more sense to go ahead and sell it for a profit and move on. And we had it for a while. We operated it for a while as a hotel. Um, I think someone else had the gaming license in it during that time, but the boys, when we ran in Las Vegas, the boys could stay there for free. It was a dump. I mean, it was, it was a dump and a half, but it was, you know, had it for a while, operated it for a while. And when a buyer came in and said, Hey, We'll pay you X amount. They looked at it and said, this is a great deal. And they just got rid of it. Chat me up. What'd you think when you hear this is just not all that far removed from we're in the bodybuilding federation business, whatever. Now, now we're doing a fucking casino. Well, the casino actually offered a lot of different opportunities because you could have live shows in there practically every day. It was a place that you could send talent. And for example, legend talent could go and do a residency there, so to speak for a month or two at a time, be greeters. It was a way to give opportunities and and do a lot more things. You have your own venue. It had a little theater in there as well. But there was just a lot of opportunity in that venture that Vince saw to to do a lot of different things. And people look at it and go, oh, they bought the Debbie Reynolds. The plan was to demolish it and build an entire new facility there. But the proximity to the strip wasn't great. I mean, it's it's in a crappy location. There's a really nice condo there now. Went by it last time I was in Vegas. But um it just provided a lot of opportunity or looked that way. So it was exciting versus, and it was doing, it was taking the product that we have now, the WWF and expanding it. It wasn't doing the WBF or doing the XFL or doing something completely out of the realm of what we do. So it made sense to me. It's exciting. Well, there you go. Uh, Sunday night heat. 
made its debut in August of 1998 on August 2nd on the USA network. It got a 3.67 rating and a 7.65 share. I don't know that we could ever really do a full show on Sunday night heat, but chat me up. Where does the concept of Sunday night heat come from? Whose idea was it? Did USA approach you guys? Did you approach USA? Tell me how that goes. USA wanted more programming and USA wanted another hour of television and they actually were interested in doing a live show on Sunday nights, which man, that's music to Vince's ears, live TV more. Um, so USA had approached us about doing more television and, and Vince obliged. It was more money and we were already out producing television. It wasn't that difficult to produce another hour a week. Um, takes 22 minutes really out of a, television taping to produce an hour. So what the hell, man, go for it. And it was more revenue for the company and a way to get more exposure on this, uh, on the first episodes, Shane McMahon is doing commentary. How does that come to be? Is that something he had aspirations of doing that he pushed for it? Did Vince suggest that? What do you remember about Shane on commentary? Vince uh, and Kevin Dunn were behind that because they wanted a, a young look. They wanted a different look. Shane was coming into the business. Shane was young. He had the look that everybody was looking for. Young, good-looking guy, grew up in the business, third generation. Um, why not? Give him a shot, man. It's in his genes and it's in his DNA. So came time to teach Shane that aspect of the business. Shane was brought in to start doing play-by-play. He did play-by-play, did color. He did analysis. And a lot of different things training for this, but it was a new experiment and to get Shane out there in front of the audience. Meltzer had this to say of his performance on the first episode. The show was hosted by Shane McMahon and his first major outing as a broadcaster, which relegated Jim Ross and even more so Jerry Lawler to supporting roles. If McMahon was guilty of anything in his debut, it was of trying too hard as he came across as forced, almost as if he was being pressured into being a clone of his father's old style Carney announcing, but trying to use more hip technology or terminology, which unfortunately, because he was using the same phrases over and over, got repetitive. They also couldn't decide on his role as if he's playing the rich kid, brat who gets the job handed to him by his father or the cool guy who openly roots for all the baby faces. I don't think it's a necessarily unfair criticism, but I said Dave Meltzer's name. So I assume you're going to melt down. I don't melt down. I think that Shane, it wasn't a good job. And I didn't think that it was something that Shane was well suited for. And I do think he tried too hard. I think that he was put in a position. It was a no win position. No matter what he did, he's going to be prepared. He's going to be compared to his dad. You got it. So he could have been the best play by play or the best color guy in the world. They're going to go, Oh, I was trying to be his dad. Right. Um, it was a no win situation. So I don't think it was a good choice for him. And I think he really tried too hard and he tried too hard to please too many people instead of just trying to become himself, which he later did. You guys also did, um, some cross promotion here. The show was taped in Anaheim, I guess we should mention, but you've got three members of the cast of Pacific blue, which follows heat on Sunday. So Sunday night heat is sort of the lead in for Pacific blue. 
And we've got Mario Lopez, AKA Slater from saved by the bell. And he's pie facing Val Venus. When Val starts coming on to the female leads, how did this whole cut, this whole thing come together? USA line it up. And how was Mario? Hell yeah. USA lined it up anytime that they could utilize us to plug some of their shows. That didn't always work the same way. The other way, you know, like if they had a, a hit show and we said, Hey, how about putting some of our guys on there? I don't know that USA always obliged that much on the other side, but we certainly did our best to work with USA network throughout the years. And Mar- Hey, Mario Lopez was cool as shit. He was, uh, nice young guy. Uh, kind of out of his element, but willing to do anything. And he was a, he was a really nice guy. And there were so many of us that knew him as Slater. So it was a lot of fun, man. And he had a, he just pretty much what you see with him is what you get. Let me say that, um, he does not have the best sense of humor. Why is that? I saw him at a uh, hotel restaurant after a UFC. Uh, back in the day, they would always either run MGM grand or Mandalay Bay. And they have like their in-house steakhouse right after. So whenever I would go to one of those fights, I would have dinner reservation right there. Me and my buddies would go eat a steak after the show. And one of the times we're there, Lopez was there with like two male buddies and like four girls in like this big circular booth, like two tables over from us. And so I'm telling my buddy, Hey man, I think that's Slater. And so we did our gimmick and you know, our deal, if you're late to the dinner table or the lunch table or whatever, and I get there before you and you're late, I order you the fruitiest frozen drink ever and demand that you drink it because you can't refuse a gift. That's rude. So we decide to send, they don't have frozen drinks here, but the fruitiest, most ridiculous drink that they make the shit with umbrellas and literal fruit all around the rim and we send it to his table and the guy says the waiter says uh do you want me to say it's from you and we're like no say it's from lisa turtle so he takes it over and mario's like who who, uh, who the hell is this from uh lisa turtle and everyone at the table laughs and he does not so since he sold it we did it again And the next one was from Jesse Spano. And the next one was from Kelly Kapowski. And the next one was from Richard Belding. And by that point, he blew a fucking gasket and cut a promo on the guy. And then we felt bad because we had put the waiter in a bad spot. So we went to apologize. He was not happy. It was free drinks. It was. How are you going to be mad that somebody sent you free? By the way, he didn't drink any of them. But the girls who what were with the him, hell? they loved him. Well, that's what I'm saying. His party drank. I sent you four drinks. Why are you mad? You can't refuse a gift. You got to drink it. He did not see the humor in that at all, but I thought it was well, fucking hilarious, but I guess I, I'm I, an asshole. I think that's hilarious as well, man. Uh, you know, Justin Timberlake, John Layfield did, did the same thing to him at, uh, uh, St. Andrews golf course right. in Scotland, basically the, the same thing when he walked in because uh, I, uh, as the story goes that Justin Timberlake didn't complete the 18, 18 rounds of golf because he was tired from walking, even though he had a caddy and he cut it short after like hole number 12 went into the clubhouse and was complaining about how 
hard it was to walk all that time. So the lady feels it. Send him a damn daiquiri. And just kept sending him daiquiri. <laughs> <laughs> it's all night. But in that case, I think Justin drank them and was appreciative of the banana daiquiris that he kept getting. I would. Yeah. I mean, so here's the deal. <laughs> if you see me and Bruce out and you send, you know, uh, Bruce a drink and say it's compliments of, Hey, uh, I'll take one from m- Kelly Kapowski. <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners would take one for Kelly Kapowski. Let's keep going here. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> The USA Network, it's written in the Observer here, had agreed to spend half a million dollars to promote the Sunday Night Heat show. Is there a budget like that discussed with Vince? Like, hey, here's what we're here's our budget for promoting the show. And when they do that, they're not talking about like internals on their station. They're saying magazine uh-huh. ads, billboards, trades, yes. USA yeah. Today, all that. And, and a big part of it, I remember one of the big things was in the bus stands in New York City. All of those were wrapped with Sunday night heat stuff, billboards all across the country. Um, some cool stuff. So yeah, it was a nice ad spend to get the promotion out there. And they were, that showed that they were behind it and that they were willing to support the show. Roll tight on that. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that some of my favorite memories were Sunday night heat, but I remember it being a critical part of the story, especially if it was right before a pay-per-view in latter day, in latter days, there was not two, there were no two words that were more fearful than, well, no, three Sunday night heat, because any of the writers that got assigned to Sunday night heat was just a death sentence wow. and they tried to rotate it around. And, and I would usually, because I was a senior, uh, I would always make it so that my week of Sunday night heat was the pay-per-view week. So I didn't have to go to the restaurant in WWF New York. There you go. So yeah, it was, that's how you got that reputation for being lazy right there. No, I was, I was smart. Yeah. I understand. I think, I think some people would never mind. So in Lowell, Massachusetts, they're naming a street stone cold way that's reported in the observer. Did you ever hear about stone cold way? Yeah, we had it all over the show when they did it. They unveiled the damn thing. We had the crew out there. I think Steve actually made it there, but yes, it was cool as shit. That is cool. Uh, it also comes out you in the Conrad way in Huntsville, don't you? No, they don't. But I do have a series. Of ho- I have a series of hotels worldwide. You should check there you them out. Go. The Conrad. The Conrad. Yeah. It you has nothing has nothing to do with Hilton whatsoever. It's just in, nah. in our in our honor here. Just got it's Conrad. Did you know there's a comedian who likes our show so much? He decided to use your first name as both his first name and his last name. I like Bruce Bruce. Well, I mean, I think he likes you too. He likes you so much that, you know, he stole your name twice. So hypothetically, you know, if the macho man was trying to give your name as a first Uh name and a last name. First name Bruce, last name Bruce. Uh huh. Oh yeah, Bruce, Bruce. Dig it. Uh huh. That's right, Bruce and a Bruce. That's what they say, Bruce, 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 Bruce. Uh huh. Yeah. Freak out, freak out. TSN signed a five-year extension for you guys. Starting in October, Raw was going to move to Monday nights at 9 p.m. in Canada, and it had an occasion aired in that slot, but usually it was much later. And the reason for the switch is because TSN was losing its NHL package. And they announced all of this on off the record 
TSN was a, pr- a pretty critical damn part of your business up North. Was it not? You know, uh, back in the day, I guess if you were to go back and if you remember the TBS days, when Ted Turner had the super station, there was TBS, there was WGN and out of Chicago, they were the big cable stations. Well, TSN in Canada was that equivalent. It covered all of Canada. It was a major network station on their cable system. So yeah, being on TNN was a huge deal and we were a big part of TN. You know, you know what I mean? No, I don't know. We were a big part of them. They were a big part of us. Thank you. Um, let's talk about, you know, and we've touched on this a little bit before, but I've always wanted to talk about the, the Spanish show. Because you guys were doing a, a Latino show, which was going to debut on Spanish television on the U S on September 12th. And it was going to be like a half hour and he would write, there is a tremendous amount of political infighting related to this project. And he also mentioned that former ring announcer, Manny Garcia was brought back to host the show. So I had never really read the part about a tremendous amount of political infighting. Talk to me a little bit about the Hispanic show that you guys were, were pushing out here in the last quarter or near the last quarter of 98. Well, it was for Univision in the States, which was the NBC universal Hispanic station. And I was, I was ahead of it. So I'm the one that produced the show and we created programming that was completely unique to it. They didn't want any WWE stars on it. They wanted it to be, a completely Hispanic product. They didn't even want any of the enhancement talent to not be of Hispanic descent. So it was like essentially starting up a new company because you had to have talent. You had to have all new announcers. They wanted it shot differently. And it was only a 30 minute show. We, we debuted and we increased the rating for that time slot by 10 times in our first uh, debut. And then the first day that we debuted and from there, we went up from there, but it, it was considered a success. However, they didn't renew it because they felt that it was not Hispanic enough. And that's where I learned all about uh, a Mexican accent versus a Puerto Rican accent versus a Portuguese accent versus true Spanish accent. And, uh, learned an awful lot. I actually was taking Spanish lessons. I had a tutor that would come to the office every other day for Spanish lessons and, and la piece, la pluma, hola Juan, hola Tomas, quien es la muchacha, esta maria, esta bonita, eh, si, esta muy bonita. It's for my, our Spanish speaking friends. What the fuck are you saying right now? <laughs> uh, yo, yo soy hablo, uh, espanol. No, I don't like soy. Ah, taquito, dos taquitos con chile y queso. I feel like hey, I know one of those words was cheese. I'm a fat guy from go. Alabama, so I got <laughs> cheese in there. Si, no yap. No yap. I, I know that but, one. I got that. But Super Astros was something. We had a completely different set of announcers, and, and I don't know. There was a lot of political infighting. The, the fighting, if there was anything, was just the struggle with Univision to try and get this show and please them. And Vince was very insistent that we do everything that we can to, to make this thing work. 
JR went on the uh, WWF hotline and really ripped in a Tony and Eric here. Uh, he said that Shivani isn't an all, isn't all that competent as an announcer. And he has to do what Bischoff tells him just as he has to do what his boss tells him. But the difference is his boss was a great announcer while Shivani's boss could never be a great announcer. And the next week, JR was apologetic about his prior comments about Tony Shivani saying that he doesn't believe Shivani has a malicious bone in his body, has a wonderful family. Um, and this is just wrestling announcers being wrestling announcers. And he says that Shivani was upset because years ago, Ross was given the job as a lead WCW announcer ahead of him, but he says that had nothing to do with it. And, um, it was a corporate decision, but he's sort of uncovering some hurt feelings that once upon a time existed between Shivani and Jr. Now they don't exist now. Everybody's all good. Anybody who listens to my other show knows that Tony Shivani has no fucks left to give. Chat me up. Did you know there was some sort of former heat as it were between Shivani and Jr. Um, no, I really didn't because here's the funny thing. When I was fired back in 1990 or 91, whatever the hell it was, I forget. I've been fired so many times, you know, it just, they kind of run together. I had gone to Atlanta and spent some time with JR. And I remember JR and Shivani were doing a radio show. There was alleged heat between me and Tony Shivani at the time. But yet when I showed up at the radio station, everything was cool. Everything was fine. So I didn't know that there was that heat. Obviously, there was heat with Jr. and Eric Bischoff because Eric Bischoff held, he held my refrigerator hostage when Jr. left to come to work for the WWF. Jr. couldn't get his refrigerator and his washer and dryer out of uh, Turner Storage or something like that. Wait, Eric is it? Bischoff has it. Are you being serious right now? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, you know Bischoff. Bischoff's got my. He got my got my refrigerator, my washer and dryer, and holding them hostage. Huh, all, all I want is what's mine. I just want my refrigerator, my washer and dryer. <laughs> Jr. was pissed about that. I feel like you're telling a real story right now. I am. He was. Jr. was pissed off when he came here, and he moved in, and he couldn't get his stuff. It was like some kind of Turner storage, or something. I don't know if he had it in their warehouse or a storage thing that Turner paid for, but uh, Eric wouldn't release his refrigerator and his washer and dryer. And Jr. was pissed. Yeah. Fuck that. Eric Bischoff, fucking John Davidson looking Ken doll. Some bitch. Got my, got my washer, my dryer, my refrigerator held hostage. I don't know how I'm gonna keep my, uh, I'm gonna keep my barbecue sauce cold and, and cool to suffice. And I, I ain't got no, nothing to keep my clothes clean. Wash, wash them in the, the dishwasher there. That's fast. <laughs> You know, with a little bit of lemon pledge and some of that cascade, your your clothes will come out smelling lemony fresh. We should just fucking roll the credits. We're not gonna beat that. That's the high it's point. It's nice, and, and you get them SOS pads for them stubborn stains and get all in there if you ain't got you know. Video yeah. cassette sales were a huge deal for you guys at this era. Uh, Stone Cold's um, video, I guess it was called Stone Cold said so was the top selling sports video in the country and number six overall. In fact, WWF had six of the top 10 best selling sports videos, stuff like DX and pay-per-view videos were there. I mean, this is an insane boom here 
And I know that, you know, VHS was really, um, hitting its stride in the eighties, but do you think you're making more here because now people aren't just renting the videos, they're purchasing them? Yeah, de- well, definitely. And they were being able to be produced at an affordable price so that everybody could purchase them. And this was also a time you put stone cold or Austin three sixteen on something and it, it flew off the shelves. Didn't matter what it was. It flew off the shelves. So for the, the videos, man, everything that we did, it was, it was a good hot time. Is it true that you guys once, um, made stone cold condoms? Um, I don't know if we made them. I know. I remember seeing, uh, they had condoms with all the guys logos on them. So they were like undertaker condoms. They, they made them for everybody. I remember seeing someone pitch that. I don't know that we actually ever did it, but they were definitely floating around. Well, I might've used a, you know, tough rattlesnake. I I mean, I, I think I've seen a lifestyles condom before. That says Austin 316, give me a hell yeah. And I said something like play safe on it. It may, they, they may have done them. I remember seeing them. I, de- I remember the pitch and I remember seeing them because you go into the conference room on the fourth floor and that was where a lot of pitch meetings took place for people. And I remember seeing boxes of these damn things up there that someone had made. Uh, maybe they did do them. To me, I didn't use them myself. Trash, trash. <laughs> to me, it's a missed opportunity because you could have had an Austin 316 condom and it, you know, says I just not whooped your ass, but something else. And you I just squirted in your eye. What? Well, I didn't have that in mind. But you could also say, you know, you could do the Undertaker one that that booty's going to rest in peace or you're going to lay the smack down on that. So and such, well, how about a brother love one? I love you. I don't think that would have sold very many. That would have sold great. I don't know that the DX ones, I mean, what would they possibly even put on that one? Suck it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these, some of these are rhetorical. Like they know what we're going. <laughs> oh, oh, I thought you were asking. Oh, hell. What the? Oh, okay. shit. I'm sorry. Let's talk about I'm trying to play along. I got you. All right. Uh, we're going to come back to stone cold condoms. I'm sure we really but... do this for, I mean, that's what we do now. Well, I mean, we're talking about sex and hopefully we're talking about good sex and maybe 20 years ago were the good old days when you were ready to go. But now with blue chew, that's blue. Like the color, you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Bluechew.com brings you the first chewable with the same FDA approved active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. So, you know, these things work and since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready anytime, day or night. Blue chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. So no more doctor's visits, no more waiting in the pharmacy. And best of all, no more awkwardness. It's made right here in the USA and shipped direct. So it's cheaper than a pharmacy. Hypothetically, if Jim Cornette were to give a special offer, about our friends over at blue chew. And by the way, every wrestling locker room in the United States has blue chew in it because all those guys listen to this show and they text me or DM me and ask if I can get them hooked up and if it's real. And I guess in certain circles, Bruce, you've become known as the penis whisperer. So I hope that's okay, but bluechew.com will give you your first shipment free motherfucker. All you got to do is use a special promo code WRESTLE. 
You just pay $5 for shipping and you get your first shipment free. Again, that's Bluetooth. You know how to spell it. B-L-U-E-Chew.com. Promo code WRESTLE. You get to try it free. Because Bluetooth is a better, cheaper, faster choice. Motherfucker. What are we doing with our lives right now? You know, it's scary, but yeah. Blue Chew is Blue Chew is the right thing, baby. If you just want to get down and chewy and everything, if you will. Have you used it yet? What the hell would I use it for? Well, just to see if it works. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, you know, you get your first shipment free. Wait, I wasn't paying promo, attention. Why are you doing promo, that? Promo code Russell. All you got to do is pay five bucks shipping and handle. And you get and you give your gimmick the hot tag, you know it. Bluetooth.com is easy, man. I mean, you just boom, go in there, bada bing, bada bing, boom, first shipment free, bam, five bucks, boom, you're done. And then gonna... whenever you're ready, it's ready for you. And you think about it, is you chew it, you don't have to swallow a pill or anything like that. Chew it up, boom. That's why they call. You know what? That's why they call it blue chew. Duh. See, so, you know, I was um, I was at a wrestling show a while back. And a wrestler came over, whispered in a hushed tone. Hey man, you got any chew on you? It's like a thing now, man. Well, yeah, it is. It's just amazing to me that 20 years ago, people wanted somas. Now they want blue chew. Well, I know where to get it. Yeah. Bluechew.com. Hey, so let's talk about Kurt Angle. Meltzer would report here that he had a strong training camp. Uh, and actually debuted with his first few matches over the weekend. He had some matches with Dory Funk in his corner as a manager and was put on all the house shows and got a big baby face reception. Uh, he also worked against Christian cage. We know who that would go on to be, uh, chat me up though, because you and I, a couple of years ago found your old original notes about Kurt's initial training. And here he is working shows around the loop. In August of 98, never seen anyone take to the water like Kurt angle. And by that, I mean that Kurt angle spent his entire life training to be the very best amateur wrestler that he could possibly be. And as an amateur wrestler, you are trained the entire time to stay off of your back, keep your shoulders off the mat within 15 minutes of being in the ring. Kurt was attacking the mat, taking bumps like a seasoned pro. I mean, I would compare him to Shawn Michaels in the way that he was attacking the mat. Different animal. Uh, my first experience with a true world-class athlete, you know, being the best in the world, probably was, was Kurt Angle. He was a completely different breed, and... Cyborg is one way to describe him. That's how people used to describe him. Uh, but an absolute natural, one of the very best first time in the ring guys I've ever seen in my life. Let's talk a little bit about Teddy Hart. We get lots of questions about Teddy here on the show, but we can't do a full show on Teddy because there's just not enough meat on the bone. But there's an interesting story that comes out in the Observer here, and it's just a line or two. Ted Annis was sent home from camp after a series of discipline problems, basically an incident where he had an argument at the hotel and coming in late three times for practice. He's always felt like one of those guys where 
a lot of people who maybe don't know his story or his situation would say, man, why is he not there? And whenever I've brought it up to you, you would quote stories to me, including stories about the hotel. Chat me up. What happened with Teddy here? Why didn't it work out? And do you ever think we'll see him get a sniff at the big leagues again? Well, Teddy was probably, I think one of the youngest guys that we ever put under contract. He may have been the youngest. I want to mention here that when he sent home, he's 18. Yeah. So Teddy is fresh. His dad, uh, had called us uh, Georgia Hart is his mother and that's his connection to the Hart family. So he was, his grandfather was Stu Hart and he was a prospect. He was one of those Hart kids that always worked out and was in the ring rolling around, taking bumps and everything. Every time you went to Calgary and, and I'm not going to get into specifics with Ted, but because he, he had such potential and he had a lot going on. I think it was too much too soon. It was a maturity level thing that Ted had never been away from home and unfortunately didn't know how to handle some things. And it just wasn't the right time. And I blame us for that because we probably shouldn't have put him in that situation and put him out on the road on his own yet. Um, regardless of whoever the hell he was. So, you know, blame can go both ways and it was just a shame because I think that he had the talent and I think that he had the desire on top of that and definitely had the pedigree to be a big star in the wrestling business, but it just was an unfortunate unfortunate set of circumstances along the way that didn't work out. And we figured that we would revisit it down the road after, you know, he got some age under him and let him go work in Calgary and just, uh, get some time underneath him. Well, so there you go. Um, do you think it ever happens? Do you think he, I mean, has that passed him by now? Do you think I, I enjoy watching him on MLW on BN sports? And I know you're working with him down there and, He's 38. So it's while that is a little older, it's not, it's not out, not of, the out realm. of the question. Exactly. I mean, a lot of guys, you know, have their best years in their forties. What say you, is there still a chance you think? There's always a chance. You never say never in this business in, you know, you take into consideration his pedigree and, and his talent and you look at him, you never say never. There could be a spot there. The Teddy Hart of today versus the Teddy Hart. Then they're two different people. And he's, you know, had a lot of living underneath him and he's grown up a lot. So, uh, only time will tell. And that's, you know, that's really up to him to either make it happen or not. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the, the television rivalry broadcasting and cable, which is an industry trade runs a huge story on the wrestling boom. And the story claims that the WWF is negotiating a network deal, but wouldn't say which network. And the story is really focusing on how national advertising for both companies is booming, at least on the network, but there is a bunch of advertisers who still won't touch wrestling because of the violence. And some folks would even say because of the bad language Bischoff would say out of desperation and in order to get bigger numbers, they're going with gratuitous TNA and women mouthing the F word. I have nothing against going for hardcore adult themes. If your network will allow you to do that, but I think it's irresponsible in the long term, And I think Vince McMahon is shooting himself in the foot. Now, of course, Bischoff is saying that, you know, the WWF is using adult themes, but they're selling ads for children's products. And he would continue. I'd like Barry Diller, 
who's the head of the USA network to justify how he sells super soakers, M&Ms and video games on a program that has half naked women saying, fuck you. Uh, and when questioned, McMahon would say adults eat candy as well. What they're trying to do is say that we are so edgy that our advertisers are going to leave us. And that's not true. Advertisers are knocking down the door and trying to get into what we're doing. Our advertisers understand what we're doing. Chat me up here. What say you, you were there, you were there when it was a lot more cartoonish in the eighties. And now it's very adult here. What was your take? Because I know a lot of people in the business would say, I wouldn't let my kids watch this, but a lot of the ads are still targeted to children. Obviously your kids weren't old enough here, but let's say Amber and Kane were 11. Would you have let them watch your show in 1998? I think I probably would have, I would have watched it with them. And there's probably some things I wouldn't have let them watch. Um, but I, there were a lot of shows that they wanted to watch growing up that I, w- I would watch with them and explain it to them. So yeah, I am that parent. I am that guy that if there was something they really wanted to see and they wanted to watch it, go, okay, let, let's see what this is. Cause I wanted to know what the hell they were looking at. Right. And you watch some of the stuff that's on MTV right now, geared towards kids that kids are watching and it, and it's scary, but I think it's incumbent on the parent to watch with their children, know what their kids are watching and monitor that. So that's my answer to that. I think that the advertisers were coming to us and the advertisers did want to advertise with us, regardless of what those advertisers were, were advertising. It's ironic. You know, Eric Bischoff would talk about how we copied him and and we did all these things that they were doing and they were the first ones to do all this and do that and then knock it when it was working for us and was no longer working for them. And we never had anyone say, fuck you on TV. That just didn't happen. Uh, may have implied it. And that's, he may have think that he saw someone mouth it, whatever. Uh, no different than what they were producing at the time. The only difference is we were more successful. I can't wait to see you carve him up at Starcast. You're looking forward to that. Aren't you? I am. Oh, I thought you would, but be. you know, and, and, but also, man, let me, let me be very clear to my haters and to those out there. There's, there's nobody I have more respect for than, than Eric Bischoff because Eric did kick our ass and Eric is, is a great businessman and had a good mind. And he was the one that brought a lot of the forward thinking and changed the business with the way that he did business. So my hat's off to him and I appreciate it because he made us work harder. It is sort of fun though, that, um, well, but I will kick his ass at Starcast. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Okay. So let's talk about the year over year business, because I, we've talked a lot about how much I enjoy 1997, my favorite year in the business, but 98, man, the money was just another level. Let's look at August of 97 compared to August of 98, your average attendance in 97, 5,359 fans, August of 98, 11,311 fans. So you're up 111% which is incredible. Uh, in August of 97, your average gate is 87,580 bucks. Your average gate just a year later in August of 98, $210,779, an incredible jump, 140.7%. You're selling out a bunch more house shows. Only 26% of your shows in August of 97 were sold out a year later, 46% are 
and even ratings are way up. You went from a 2.0 average in August of 97 to a 2.9. So a 45% jump. I mean, every indicator is that business is up and it sort of feels like you guys knew that when you sort of just flippantly say, oh, we could put Austin 316 on anything and it would fly off the shelves. You definitely had the hot hand here. Did you not? Yeah. Yeah. Just look at those numbers. It was, you know, reminiscent for me of 1987 when I first came in and everything was selling out you back then it was put Hulk Hogan on whatever Hulkamania running wild. So it was a great time in the business. The difference now was you had cable television and we weren't doing as much syndicated television. And you also had this damn thing called the internet where you could get your product and you could get your merchandise and everything out to the consumer in different ways. So it was, it was just red, freaking hot, good, good times. Well, some more good times are on the way. SummerSlam 1998. Let's get to it. Uh, the show was sold out forever. I guess we should mention here, not just in the main arena, but there's another arena attached to this. We'll talk about that in a minute, but the main arena seats, 19,066 fans, 15 to 74 of that were paying 764 grand. It's the third largest gate for a live wrestling show in North America, uh, that year. It only trailed WrestleMania in Boston and Hogan Goldberg at the Georgia dome. Huge, huge money. Before the pay-per-view, there was a live version of Sunday Night Heat. Shawn Michaels would join Shane McMahon and JR on commentary. And Meltzer would write, announcing is clearly not Michaels forte, although he only got confused on names once or twice, and he didn't say much to make one cringe. McMahon has a long way to go, but this was the best of his five shows to date, probably because he appeared to be getting the product over more than getting himself over. Now, I know that sounds sort of shitty, but that is something that a lot of announcers have to learn. And you've told me that before, that a good announcer doesn't try to get himself over. He gets the match over. But a lot of times, wrestlers don't really know how to do that. They're just used to getting themselves over, right? Sure. And the main thing you want to do as a commentator is you want people to remember the story in the ring. You want them to remember the story, not you. And if you tell a good story, that will happen. The rating comes in at a 3.23, which was its lowest to date, which is interesting to me because it's the first time the show is airing live and you've got it as a lead in for SummerSlam. So you would think it would be the peak interest, but it's the total opposite. Why do you think that the rating was down for a Sunday night heat here? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it wasn't down a whole lot. It was down, I guess, in comparison to the previous weeks. I think that people were not necessarily in the Sunday night heat habit yet. It takes a little while to get into that habit of, Hey, I've got to tune in Sunday. Um, it can be, you know, it could be anything, a new gas station opened up, but it, it wasn't down so much that everybody's going, Oh my God, the ratings down. One of the, uh, storylines they did on that heat was Brian Christopher rest in peace and Scott Taylor, of course, Scotty too hottie. And Grandmaster Six A, too cool, beat LOD two thousand in two minutes and fifteen seconds. Now this is when Drozdolf is with them, and he's showing up as Animal's partner. But Hawk comes out wearing his helmet, doing his stoned act, and eventually a reluctant Draws agrees to leave. 
And that means animal works the whole match by himself while Hawks just stumbling around and never even takes his helmet off. Uh, eventually they're trying to set up the doomsday device and Hawk still wearing the helmet goes up backwards. Like he's going to do a moonsault instead, but then stumbles off crashes into animal and Taylor pins him. So it's just a continuation of the storyline, but that's a pretty controversial storyline. And I'm sure we'll talk about it sometime. Tell me how reluctant, if at all, the guys were to agree to do an angle sort of based on Hawk's real life substance issues. It was very controversial and animal and Hawk were actually for it. So it was a different way to tell the story. Hawk's personal issues were somewhat public at the time. We felt that by addressing this, that that would probably help Hawk in a lot of respects, but he was on board. It was something that they didn't express to us that they were unhappy with and actually came up with ideas like this. Hey, what if I did this? What if he did that? So a lot of them were their ideas as way to further this angle. And, uh, it's controversial. So it it got people talking in that regard. It was good. Did anybody protest? Was Russo involved? Any other details about this you can share? Yeah. Yeah. Russo was involved. I believe it was Russo that really came up with the idea and helped structure the idea, but he did work an awful lot with Hawk and animal on it. The idea by putting Drozdov with them was to give them a younger vibe and a younger feel, but also to have that division in between LOD and kind of give them some, something to have, you know, some, some meat on the bone, if you will, because at that time, people were looking at them. They weren't what they used to be. So this gave them an excuse to not be what they used to be. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Speaking of somebody who's not who they used to be, Dustin Runnels loses to Gangrel in the next match in two and a half minutes with the implant DDT. Meltzer would write bad match with no heat. Whatever the idea is thus far for the Runnels character, it doesn't seem to be working. Now we've talked about this briefly in our Goldust episode. This is when Goldup shows up in the crowd, um, during matches, holding up a sign saying he's coming back and he's not Goldust here. He's Dustin Runnels. Chat me up here. Why didn't this work? Because in, in my opinion, I think that they were trying to imply kind of a religious, he has, he is risen. He is going to return. And I don't think people want that. It was, I think it was too clever for its own good. You're saying people don't want that. And you were fucking brother love. But I didn't do religion. Oh my God. Listen to you. I mean, how did he do religion? Well, he implied it, but you didn't No. I'm going to fucking punch you when I see you. You can't punch me from here. Next up, DOA beat Bradshaw and Vader in just under three minutes. And they tease that Vader and Bradshaw are not getting along from the start. Uh, they missed time a high kick and then followed by mistiming a lariat. Eventually Vader collides with Bradshaw who then slugs Vader, who falls backwards into a schoolboy, And there's your pin. They have a, a very be- brief feud after this. Uh, Vader was essentially enhancement talent at this time. Bradshaw, Mark Henry, Kane, guys like that. 
and he winds up leaving the company not too terribly long after this. What do you remember about Bradshaw and Vader? This was an attempt to get Bradshaw over in the singles career. We felt that John would be that big, rough and tough kind of, uh, Stan Hansen, but in a baby face role, just a rough and tough cowboy type guy that kicks everybody's ass. So that was the idea behind it. And Leon during this time in his career, we were using Leon to get, get people over and to make other guys stronger. Uh, Michael's interviews Sable and asked her who her mystery partner is, but she won't reveal it. So they wind up dancing in the ring to what Meltzer called an embarrassingly little pop, considering the magnitude of the two stars. And he would continue Sable loses her luster every time she dances. Now, of course, we've talked a lot about Sable recently in the archives available now at something to wrestle.com, but chat me up though. Why don't you think this was better received? Was New York just not into Shawn Michaels here? It, there was nothing really, I don't think it was presented as this really big deal. It was a nice little in, you know, uh, promo to be able to go out and have Sable in front of the crowd, tease the match coming up with, uh, Mark Merrow and Jackie later on in the night. And it was just a exposure type thing to get another plug. And it was a quick little, you know, shake your ass and dance. It wasn't meant to get a huge pop. It wasn't meant to be this huge monumental thing. And again, I just, whatever, for whatever reason, Dave Meltzer doesn't like beautiful women named Sable. Next up, Austin shows up with a sledgehammer and the stooges are trying to take it from him. But this time Sergeant Slaughter's there too. Vince gets mad at the guys for not being able to stop him. And he goes out to confront him, but he also backs down. Is this when the Stooges start to really take off? You think 1998? Yes. The Stooges were absolutely unsung heroes. They were, they stole the show, man. They stole every scene that they were in just by being themselves. Patterson and Briscoe had natural chemistry. They worked great together because it was all improv and they didn't care. They just were out there being themselves. You know, you talk about a sledgehammer. I'm going to give you a sidebar here and tell you a story. I don't think I've ever told in public before. Sledgehammer, Peter Gabriel, you know, going to be a sledgehammer. Yeah. Remember that video? Yeah. Okay. Well, it was a real famous video and it was done at a production house in New York city. This was during the time that back in 1989, 1990, something like that. I was trying to do a new signature for the open of all of the WWF shows. Remember they used to have WWF, the symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. And then we did something else. The idea was to build a WWF world or a city of the WWF. And you take every major landmark from all over the world. You take the St. Louis arch, the, Statue of Liberty, the Eiffel Tower, uh, Big Ben, and, and the Egyptian pyramids. And they're all in one place. And you have a plane that flies through and shows you all of these landmarks. And basically, you find out that's the WWF. Cool idea, but the, the, the studio where they did Sledgehammer, that was my pitch. Oh, man, these guys did this great video, and we're going to do this and do that. Long story short. After all said and done, I bring this not even complete signature open to Vince. And he looks at it one time. 
He popped the tape out of my tape player in my office, took the tape and walked about 20 yards to the men's restroom, threw the tape in the toilet and sat there kicking the flush Say, that's what I think. That's what I think of. It's the shits. And that was roughly, that was a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of work that literally got flushed down the toilet. And whenever I hear Sledgehammer and think of Peter Gabriel, I think of that open that we did that never saw the light of day. A couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it's expensive. The same open could be done now CGI for, and somebody could probably do it in a day. <laughs> you know, some kid in his basement could probably do it in a day type thing. But back then, that was a big deal. So let's talk about our opening match here. We've got D'Lo Brown working with Val Venus. Of course, D'Lo gets the win uh, by DQ, and he retains the European title in 15 minutes and 24 seconds. Uh, this is sort of fun. D'Lo was billed as being from Helsinki, Finland. Meltzer would say the match had good points and bad points and that there were some nice moves and great pops for near falls, but they were out there too long and there were some blown spots and a lame finish. He didn't like it. And I thought it was too long too. a star in three quarters. I did enjoy that. They had the chest protector involved a little bit because it feels like that wasn't used enough. Chat me up. What'd you think? Well, what's the date today? I agree with Dave Meltzer. It, it was it was a decent match, nothing to write home about, too long, and the finish absolutely sucked. Lame finish with, with Val shoving the referee down after the referee had grabbed his foot on the top rope so that Val crotched himself, and, you know, that all happened. But it was a lame, terrible, just shitty finish. Chat me up here. Uh, D'Lo Brown, really a CPA? What would you think? How did he do? We just haven't spent a lot of time talking about D'Lo Brown. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Well, D'Lo Brown was one of those guys that came in for the nation of domination, came from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Jim Cornette, motherfucker. AC Connor. He's a good-looking guy. Bump-taking son of a bitch. D'Lo had that opportunity to be one of those guys in the nation of domination that was in the background. Every chance that he got to showcase his talent, he made the most of, he bumped his ass off and showed that he could work and showed that he could do a lot more than be that guy in the background. So D'Lo, because of his work and his attitude and his work ethic, was able to secure himself a spot. Great guy. He was a certified public accountant. That's what he did for a living, but he always wanted to be a wrestler. He lived his dream and was able to come in and he was one of those guys. It's a nice success story to, to hear something like that. The European title. We don't talk about it a ton here on the way to this show. He actually beat triple H for this thing. Of course, uh, he first joined the company as a member of the nation of domination. How did you think he was coming along here? I mean, it is a little bit of a push because he's got the European title. He's opening a big pay-per-view. I think he's the only heel who won here, even though it was by DQ. He was coming along. You know, he was one of those guys that you were hoping was going to break out of the pack and be a star. He had the talent and it's like, let's give him something. This was also during the time that in a lot of the stuff that Vince Russo did was giving everyone a story. Right. And, and that to me is, is a great trait. And 
it was giving D'Lo more story and you cared about him here. Um, let's talk about Val Venus because around this time, the Toronto examiner did a, a pretty long piece on Val Venus and, uh, they would note that TSN edits out a little more than half of his act and Sean Morley, the guy who played Val Venus would say, there've been a few lines presented to me that I won't do. I won't do something that I feel like shouldn't be on TV. I have my own set of morals. And if I don't feel comfortable doing it, I won't. Do you remember something that he vetoed? Cause it feels like a lot of stuff made it. That's what I was just going to say. What the hell could that possibly be that he vetoed based on all the vignettes and the things that he did say? I can't think one, th- one time he ever came and said, Oh no, I can't say that might've been something good to say for a newspaper interview at the time. Val was willing to do just about anything. Next up. We've got Kurgan Golga and giant Silva beating Takamichi Noku, men's town dick to go. And Funaki, they got 10 minutes and 10 seconds. Melzer would write, remember when Taka was thought to be the best young worker in the business. Anyway, this had to be the worst match of his career. Insane clown posse came out to do a live performance of the oddities entrance music, basically comedy spots with Kai and Ty playing the role of midgets, but it went five minutes too long. Chat me up. What'd you think about this? Um, uh, Meltzer would put in here. I just remember being told that after WCW ran that Kevin Nash versus Ray Mysterio match on nitro, how Vince McMahon referred to it saying he'd never be so stupid to put on a match like that. When did Vince McMahon say that to who? I don't know. It got negative two stars here. Not a great match. Unfortunately, ICP's ring entrance is uh, edited off of the network. Before we talk about insane clown posse, talk about this fucking match. I was highly entertained by it, watching it again. Yes, it was terrible, but it was fun to watch. And it was, I, I, I laughed every time that Kurgan was in the ring because all he did was constantly dance and he did the exact same dance and it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, Wally Yamaguchi with the horrible over the top facials and stereotypical, everything was just comical to me and the giant silva came in who probably wasn't he wasn't ready to be in the ring yet probably listen to you probably this was an instant where eh, it was an instance where you know he was rushed and well you know put him in the ring he's he's here put him in we'll we'll choreograph it it'll be fine he did every andre spot that Andre used to do the first time you would see Andre, the giant back in the territory days, he did the double knee lift spot. He did the ass spot into the corner with the squisher. And it was, was what it was. It was a comedy relief. Probably could have done it in seven minutes. Uh, but at the same time, it was, it was fun it was a relief from everything else on the card and you got to have, you know, you can't have all the same serious matches. So you got Dick to go in there and show Funaki. How can you go wrong? ICP got any fun stories about working with them? I feel like these guys get a bad rap. They're super wrestling fans, uh, sort of self-made guys came up selling shit out of the trunk and, uh, sort of made their own way. Well, what was it like to you got any good ICP stories? Got any good things you can share with us? Well, ICP mass, that's an American dream story. These guys. And, and again, 
creating their own label because nobody else would would publish them in doing it all on their own. So they had a lot of heat for that. I remember when they came into the studio, we before we put them in the ring, you know, Roos was like, oh, insane clown pops. We'll just put them in the ring. No, they can work. They've, they've had matches before. The problem was, no, they couldn't work. Yes, they had matches before, but they couldn't work. Right. They were terrible. Well, so I mean, they're musicians. They're not wrestlers. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're attractions. There you go. What they are. So, uh, we, we brought them in, stuck them in the ring with my brother and he was like, no, they're terrible. They don't have a clue. They, they don't know what they're doing. So we made the attempt to teach them a few things. And here's where, you know, the, the rubber hits the road. ICP put the time in, they put the work in, they tried to learn and they, they gave it their best shot. They were, they had a, they have an audience still do Jesus, man. They've got their juggaloo gimmick that goes on and they draw. Hey, it's what? juggalo, not juggaloo. What are you talking about? In Texas, it's juggaloo. Yeah. Hey, you see them juggaloos? So is it really juggalo? You're yeah. right. It is juggalo. What is a juggalo? By the way, they're at, um, they're at Starcast. Did you know that? Awesome. Huh. Yeah. It was shaky, shaky, too dope. And, uh, Oh, shaggy fuck you. Dope. Come on. <laughs> it's violent, no, violent Q and shaky, shaky too no, much. Shaggy too dope. I know who they are. I'm a juggalo from shaky, way back. Shaky two, two ropes and burn them. Stay with Sasha Bay. You know what I liked about them is I, I first discovered them in like 97 and, uh, wrestling was so hot that one of my wrestling buddies were like, Hey, these guys have rap songs about wrestlers. And there was a lyric in there. Like, um, Sabooed your mama through a coffee table. And I was like, oh, I'm in. These guys know what that is. I'm in. There you go. So let's talk so about. They, they have their audience, but they, they were easy to work with. Uh, I think that, you know, there were guys that automatically looked at them, said they don't belong in the business and I don't want to work with them. But that, that was unfair. Next up, we've got X-Pac working with Jeff Jarrett in a hair versus hair match. They go 11 minutes and 11 seconds. <laughs> this is fun to watch. This is the highlight of the show to me. It just tickled me. Uh, here's what Meltzer would say. Howard Finkel with a freshly shaved head and mustache came out wearing a DX shirt and a bow tie to second X-Pac. Finkel looked like a cross between Vader's little brother and Captain Kangaroo. I don't know how to nicely put this other than when the cool group has Finkel as a member or when Finkel starts saying suck it, then how cool or anti-authority can saying suck it truly be. They have a good match together. They get three stars. Uh, it's an interesting post-match before we get there. What do you make of the entrance with Fink coming out, doing the crotch chop to the pyro saying, suck it. Fink as a classic. Oh, oh, it's so good. It's, it's so bad. It's good. It's like, yeah. oh my God. But, but the best part to me was watching Howard trying to synchronize the crotch chop. Yes. With the pyro. And he's looking over at X-Pac and they're trying to get set. And and Howard's doing the yeah yeah and Xbox doing the yeah, pace. So it was that was just positively hilarious. And it was a way to get Howard out there, especially in the garden, man. The folks in the garden, Howard Finkel walks on water. He is their announcer. He was their man. And for Jeff Jarrett to try and humiliate the Fink and shave his head earlier, and for Howard to get his come up it's later, that was a big deal. 
And regardless of what everybody wants to say, I'm sure you're going to get into, oh, it was a rib, it was that, it was this. It was Howard getting involved, and he loved it. Why did you think I was going to say it was a rib? Because that's what everybody says. I didn't say that. You were going to say that. Don't tell me you weren't going to say that. I wasn't. I was going to instead talk you about were. how you guys shit the bed. It feels like you guys have been around wrestling long enough to know that these dime store electric shears you guys had to try to shave Jeff Jarrett were not going to work. They do not. The guys are very frustrated and Jarrett's doing his best to stall for time, but he's yelling loud enough for the camera to pick it up. You're all full of shit and things like that. Um, eventually they have to cut the, uh, use the uh, scissors to cut the hair off and they start trying to play with it and put it on the headbangers heads and do comedy with it. Chat me up. What happened with the match? And then more specifically, the post-match debacle. First of all, I thought the match was excellent. I, I loved the match. I thought that they had a hell of a match, as we would say. And the ending was what it was. But the here's what pisses me off. And, and I hate this with a hair match. You know, we did it with Kevin Nash. We did it with Jeff. To me, a hair match, you get shaved bald. So a hair match always was me. That's what it is in Mexico. It was... You know, hair versus mask, the hair actually used to mean something. And in this particular situation, Jeff wanted to get his head shaved because his wife, Jill, had was going through chemo and lost her hair. And Jeff wanted to, you know, ba- basically empathize with her. And, and I appreciate that. And it's actually kind of a hard thing to talk about. So I'm going to go ahead and move right the fuck on. Um but Jeff, the, the idea was that they were just going to cut Jeff's hair short, which I just didn't understand. I didn't like it. For losing the match, Jeff Jarrett got a better haircut. Right. Is <laughs> what happened. Uh, the shears, that was something that, that I always fought whenever we had a, because I experienced it with hair matches in Texas before with the battery operated shears, man, you got to use dog shears and you got to use electric shears like they use in the army. Those will cut through wet hair because when it's wet and it gets all matted, you can't cut with those little cheap beard uh, trimming bullshit. And that's what happened in that. So they just took to the scissors and started cutting it off. And then Jeff got the hell out of Dodge. But to me, that's, you know, booking a finish that you can't deliver on and it's the shits. Uh, this is a really classic stipulation. Is it not? I mean, this has been around forever and ever that the hair match. Well, to me, it is coming from Texas and coming also from the, the Lucha tradition of it being a big deal, but Vince never got it. It was like, ah, they lose their hair. Who the hell cares? Um, it wasn't a big deal to him. He didn't get it. But I always felt that if you built it up right, kind of like we did at this little match we had at WrestleMania where it meant a whole hell of a lot, that it it would mean something. But I just didn't think we did very well on the follow through here. What, um, I mean, you guys, uh, we've talked about this before with like Edge and and Kurt Angle. Sometimes you guys can't help yourself, but you you don't wait and you don't tell the talent until the day of just to make them sweat, just to be dicks. Right. I mean, Waltman, no, they all know Okay, because with a hair, with a hair match guys, usually the first question out of their mind, who's losing their hair. Wait a minute. What? And you ask them first. That's just, that's a old wives tale and 
urban legend. Okay. So just so I'm clear, Christian edge Waltman, they're all lying. What that they didn't know. Yeah. They knew they have. Dude, I guarantee you when Waltman was doing promos for this, he wanted to know who the hell was going to lose their hair. Oh, I'm sure he wanted to know. Well, you're not going to go and tell a guy day of, Hey, you're losing your hair. And edge and Christian on, and Kurt on, and everybody we knew going into that, that was a way for Kurt to, he was balding anyway. Didn't you once tell your brother, you got to cut your hair today and then take a camera to the barbershop so you could skin him. That was a completely different deal. <laughs> that was a new gavel, something that had, that had come up the day before. And said, Hey, if you want to do this, do it. And, uh, Hey, it's no big deal. If you don't want to do it, you're just, you're fucking fired. But I mean, well, no, that it wasn't your fire, but we don't have anything for you Yeah. here. But if you'd like to do this, here's an opportunity to do this. And then you're the super good brother. It's like, hang on, be right back. Goes and gets the camera. Well, Jesus, wouldn't you want to document it? So fun to me. How, how many times a week do you just sit back and watch that tape just to laugh at your brother? God, I wish I had it. I'm sure you do. If we had it, don't. we, we would. I don't No, I'm saying I'm sure you wish you had it because we would have posted it by now. Oh, hell yeah. Next up, we've got Sable and her mystery partner, Edge, beating Mark Merrow and Jacqueline. Uh, Meltzer would say the match was fine, although the reactions to Sable wrestling paled in comparison to when she was first put in the ring a few months back at WrestleMania. No pop for Edge as the mystery partner. Most of the match spots were where Merrow and Jacqueline would run into each other. Sable was acceptable and even did a Frankensteiner off the top for a big pop. What'd you think of the match here, Bruce? You haven't seen it in like 20 years. It gets a star <laughs> and a half. Um, maybe a bit of a silly finish. What say you? I thought it was all right for what it was. Thank God for Jacqueline. Um, <laughs> Jacqueline and edge being in that match. Thank God. You know, this was in so many ways, this was edges coming out party. He wasn't over but it was a way to get him involved and get him exposed on a pay-per-view and get him out in front of the audience. Look, it was what it was. Nobody was expecting this huge, great match. It was just a way to feature Sable and move on. Why was edge the right guy here? I think it was, he was young. It was a good way to give him a win and get him involved in something without having to have, build up a major program going into it. It just was a different way to debut somebody and get them out there. So let's talk about, um, you know, what, what was it like for edge here? I'm not saying this to be silly. I think a lot of people, when they hear it's a mystery partner, they would have thought that maybe it was somebody like that had a history with marrow. I don't know who that could have been. Maybe you could freestyle Butterbean or somebody else. Why? I mean, when Edge comes out and there's no pop, do you feel like, well, let's see what he can do. I mean, it's gotta be the reaction, right? The react, the reaction was they didn't have, they didn't have any idea what the hell he was going to do. But in to answer your question, who the hell would that have been that had a history with Merrill? There wasn't anybody that had a history with Merrill that anybody would care about. No, I agree. I mean, unless it was Hunter and clearly it's not cause he's working with the rock and they wouldn't put them together, but it just feels like in a traditional wrestling sense, 
there would have been a reason for it to be this mystery partner instead of just debuting someone cold as ice. This was Vince Russo logic. I, it'll be the edge, bro. Uh, in a match at the the uh, the theater, as you said, at Madison Square Garden, Ken Shamrock beat Owen Hart in a Lions Den match. These guys go nine minutes and sixteen seconds, and Meltzer loved it. He said it was really good, and they built a small structure with a nine foot high cage, similar to an octagon from the UFC. But I'm I'm sure you guys couldn't do an octagon. And it's a much smaller fighting service than the octagon, but it was good. Hard wrestling, a unique environment. The crowd was hot for it. Ultimately, um, we get Owen Hart tapping out three and a half stars. It, it was a one-off. It was a cool spectacle. I understand why they didn't do it a lot, but I thought it worked back then. And I didn't think it aged that bad. what did you think when you watched it? I thought it was great because it was a completely different environment and it was being able to utilize the environment they had in that cage. They didn't have a 20 by 20 ring. They didn't have ropes to bounce off of, but they still did spots off the cage as if they did. They utilized that thing to the max, but best of all, every single thing they did was solid and believable. And it was just, it was shot differently, shot differently because of the contraption that was built, that damn lion's den deal. But you also had the the confined space there with the people in the theater that were on top of them. So I thought it was a cool visual, but to me, going back and watching the match, I was just amazed at the things that Owen and Ken came up with to make it interesting, keep the audience involved, not having a ring and all the other toys. That's an art. It really was. Um, and I guess, you know, I mean, you got to wonder, like when you see this with the, with the structure and all that, were a lot of people thinking this was a legitimate situation. I don't know. Fans might've felt, felt that because it was a completely different locale and a different vibe to the match. That was the intent to give them something different, take them outside of the, the garden and take them into a completely foreign environment that they hadn't seen before. The other thing for us on a, on a separate note was being able to utilize that paramount. I think it's a paramount what they call it now, but utilize that theater next door, which for years had been used in the garden for closed circuit TV. When they would sell out the garden, they would just put the, garden event up on those big screens in there and people would pay to go see it live next door uh in the paramount theater so utilizing that sell tickets for that people got to see that it was pretty cool as a reminder this feud gets started when owen and ken are 10 a tag match and owen high fives him before the match but then kicks him in the balls and breaks his ankle and then he joins the nation of domination and that sets off a series of matches. We're on the heels of fully loaded where Owen beat Shamrock in the Hart family dungeon, which is in our archives. If you'd like to hear about that, something to wrestle.com, but now we're doing a lion's den match. So the idea was we had one match in Owen's turf, the dungeon. Now we're going to have one in Ken's turf, a cage fight, the lion's den. And I guess maybe, you know, you've got some friends like that. Maybe that you need to do a little bit of a fan duel with, and it's been a long off season without football. But now, man, these guys at FanDuel, they're in the best shape of their lives and they're ready for more. There's more ways to play, more ways to challenge your friends. And most importantly, 
more ways to win. It's been uh, playing FanDuel now at my household for a few years uh, because we just like to uh, mess with people at the office. It's my favorite place to play fantasy sports, period. And they've never been more easy or fun to deal with than right now. Now, you don't have to be a fantasy expert. And if you're not, FanDuel is clearly the best place to play. Isn't that right, Bruce? Absolutely. It doesn't matter if you like to play the NFL. MLB, PGA, even NASCAR, even the WNBA. Doesn't matter what your sport is, FanDuel has a place for you, man. And I love all the different options that you got because you can go head to head. You can compete against a single opponent like you and me, Conrad. We can compete against each other one on one over at FanDuel. Uh, And also for me, they have a beginners only section where no expert players are allowed. If you're a beginner, you're playing against other beginners. Got a friends mode. You can make your own damn whole fantasy football league or whatever you want to do. That's what you've been doing. And FanDuel, man, they've got it all in Mech and Dream says, baby, right now, here's what we're going to do for you. You ready for the offer, baby? It better not be a big deal because we're going to It's a pretty good deal, let no, me tell you. No. It's a good deal because here's what you go you going to get $20 bonus. That's right. $20 when you make your first deposit over at FanDuel. Bruce. All you got to do? Bruce. Listen, baby. No, no, no. This is good. Cuz you come on and play. You come on over there, you play with us over at fanduel.com. That's f a n d u e l.com forward slash Pritchard. P-R-I-C-H-A-R-D. And you're going to get a $20 bonus when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Dude, that's like playing for free. Well, I mean, you just gave away somebody's $20. Yeah, I know. And all you got to do is go to FanDuel.com slash Richard. Do you know, like, if, if a thousand of our listeners go do this, then you just cost them $20,000. Yeah, so go to fanduel.com slash Pritchard and you're going to get a $20 bonus. All you got to do is make your first deposit. They're going to give you 20 bucks. I have been playing on this damn FanDuel all day long, just learning about it, seeing what I can do, and I'm all excited. I'm calling my friends going, okay, listen, we're going to go head up with the NFL. I even called my buddy John Layfield in Bermuda and said, here, here's what we're going to do. Well, I hope you beat him. Well, you know. So let's talk about, um, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the UFC crossover some other time, but I mean, we should touch on it here briefly. Did you guys consider an octagon and somebody said, Hey, I don't think we can do that. Well, how was Vince and the rest of the office sort of looking at the UFC in 98? It's not nearly what it would be say seven years later. No, it's not. But we looked at wanting to be different than what the UFC presented, which is why we didn't want to do an octagon. Right. Wanted to make it different, have a little bit different of a presentation, nor did we want to mess with any of their copyrights or anything else that they were doing, even though we were friendly with them. And we even talked about having um, Big John McCarthy is a referee for the match. Uh, that's where I got in big trouble because Ken Shamrock had given Big John my number and Meyerowitz, who owned the UFC at the time, thought that I was trying to steal Big John McCarthy and called Vince irate. What the hell is Bruce Pritchard doing trying to steal Big John McCarthy? I hadn't even talked to Big John. 
Ken had just given him my number and said, Hey, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if we had big John referee? And I had to go into Vince's office on speakerphone with Meyerowitz and explain what had happened and how I haven't even talked to the guy, but that's a whole nother story. Let's talk a little bit about the next match here. We've got the new age outlaws regaining the WWF tag team titles when they beat mankind and what wound up being a handicap match in five minutes and 16 seconds. I guess this is Billy Gunn's sixth reign as a tag team champion, which at the time was an all time record for the promotion. And Meltzer would say this match didn't work on many levels. So we're one month removed. For mankind getting thrown off the fucking stage and through the cage. So there's no way to match the expectation or exceed the expectation that was set the prior month. And you've also got, you know, lots of weird things going on. You've got McMahon trying to manipulate Foley and. Technically the outlaws are the baby faces, but they're just destroying mankind. Who's really being manipulated by McMahon. Lots of violence here. Lots of big spots. Eventually he's thrown into a dumpster. Uh, he being Foley pronouns, pal. And then Kane magically appears in the dumpster with the sledgehammer and then drives it down onto mankind. You never actually see mankind take the shots. Thank goodness. But the match gets one star. This feels weird that you've got baby faces just destroying a guy two on one like this, showing no mercy. At this point, mankind's a baby face, right? Not technically, he was still he was in that quasi, you know, transition at this point. But if for nothing else, if all you do is you go back and you watch the interview with Vince McMahon in Mankind. Uh, I think it was right after the Jeff Jarrett match, something like that. One of the most entertaining things I have seen in a long time. Just Mick Foley talking about, well, do I have to do this, Mr. McMahon? And I don't, Kane's not here. And going on and Vince going on, I'll deliver to you on a silver platter here. And he had a candelabra or something on a silver platter that he gave Mick. But, Going back and looking at those impromptu, unscripted, uh, just interactive promos backstage was, to me, worth the price of admission. The match was was odd because it was a transition, but that also was during a time that your baby faces were kick-ass, you know, giving the double bird, drinking beer and cussing and swearing and everything else. So it was it was a different time, man. It was the attitude era. Oh man. Just didn't age well to me. I, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't following it. I love the characters, but this just felt like a miss. What's not a miss is the ladder match for the intercontinental championships next. And man, these guys have their work cut out for them. 10 years prior to this at WrestleMania 10, two guys went out and had the most famous ladder match ever. Scott Hall and Shawn Michaels. And now in front of that same audience, they're trying to top it, but with a different style ladder match, we've talked about this a lot. The physicality here has been getting stepped up week after week on the August 17th episode of raw DX and the nation fighting a street fight, which the nation wins, but rock rams a ladder in a triple H's face. So he's bleeding from the mouth. 
Here we go. Now we've got a ladder match and Hunter gets the win after 26 minutes and Meltzer would write, they had this seven and a half foot ladder stationary that I figured they were going to name Silva. Helmsley sold his knee, which he had an MRI done on earlier in the week, but not as much as you'd think. There was nothing spectacular along the lines of the Shawn Michaels ladder bumps that some ladder matches are famous for in the WWF, but this was the match that stole the show. Some of the spots where the guys were climbing the ladder were way too slow, but other than that, the effort was tremendous. My V got great heat for working on Helmsley's leg. He continues to give a rundown, but it's a glowing review from there from Meltzer. He gave it four and a quarter stars. He would write, even though he was a heel, you could really sense Maivia had totally won the crowd over as being a great performer with this match. You and I have touched on this before. And I think a lot of people looked at this as sort of the barometer and both of these guys are poised to be a top guy. Who is it going to be? And while Hunter won the match, it feels like Rocky won him over because Hunter wins the IC title, but in just a handful of months. The rock's going to be the world title. Is this the match that sort of made the rock for Vince McMahon? He was rock was already on his way, but you go back and you look at the entire presentation of this match. We had Chris Warren and the DX band come out and sing Hunter out into the ring. And I forgot, you know, you hear that song so many times, but to hear Chris do it here. They had the band. I thought it was one of the best renditions ever. Um, let me just tell you, I go the other way. I thought this was a studio song. I thought the live performance sucked. I know that, you know, I loved he's no longer with us and I shouldn't shit on it, but I'm just saying I did not fucking like the live performance. I much preferred the actual recorded version. Why did you like the live so much? I, I loved it because the some bitch could sing and I liked the just the raw guitar and everything in there. I, it was different, and I liked those guys being out in the ring. And it was and it was different, and it was good. I liked trashing all the instruments afterwards, and the whole presentation was different and it was unique. Then you get into the match, and it, it's symbolic because the match was different and unique. It wasn't the high flying suicidal bumps it told a story and they started that story from the rock taking out triple h's knee so you you knew about the knee earlier on in the night you you told that story they had something to work and it just goes to show that you don't have to do all those crazy bumps you don't have to do all the over the top theatrics to tell a great story and have a great match and get people invested in the product. And that's what they did here. They told you a different a different story in a ladder match. And everybody believed it and everybody got into it. And it was logical. Um, I got a laugh at the, oh, well, they climbed up the, the ladder too slow. And I'm watching this match and watching the guys go up the ladder. First of all, I'm terrified of heights. And I have been on a ladder in the ring. So me going up a ladder in general on stable ground is terrifying for me. And I go up it slower than what they were doing in the ring, but to do it in a ring where it's shaky and there's things going on, but it also is the the drama of a match. You're telling a goddamn story here, folks. 
So it's that inch by inch. He crawls and he climbs. And is he going to get there? Is he not going to get there? So that's always funny to me when these people go, oh, go first of all, go try and climb a ladder in a ring while somebody's bouncing around and the damn thing's given on every step. That's terrifying in and of itself. And at the end of the match, when the referee climbs up the ladder about three steps to raise Hunter's hand, and you see Hunter grab the grab the ladder like, dude, <laughs> what the fuck? I'm on top here. It's it's just it was unstable. But again, I say all that to say the match was great, and they told a hell of a story. I, I somehow goofed up there and said that that WrestleMania 10 match was 10 years prior. I guess I was thinking about WrestleMania 20. There's only a handful of years here. You know, you're talking about 94 versus 98. Were there concerns? Maybe not from a rock standpoint, but Hunter. I mean, he he obviously knew what that ladder match meant to Sean and the company. Were there concerns as to whether or not they could pull it off and that they had to sort of do something different because they knew it really couldn't compete if they tried to just copycat? Not really. They were prepared to go out and tell their own story. And it wasn't, oh, I'm going to go out and try and outdo what they did. They were going to go out and tell their own story and have the best match for their story. And, and that's what they did. And I think that it held up in comparison. Different. Just they're different matches, different performers. Why do you think their feud isn't really talked about more than it is? They had a hell of a feud in 98. I mean, with the whole spoofing that they did where DX spoofed the nation. And that's been super controversial because you got white dudes and blackface and, but they feuded all, but uh, not talked about compared to what? And well, I just mean like, you know, I feel like it gets glossed over a little bit in this era. I mean, they did a two out of three falls match at fully loaded. I mean, there's a, a whole string of matches here where they're working together. And in the end, I guess, you know, Hunter wins the series, but rock wins the push. What was their relationship like behind the scenes at this time? You know, they weren't going out and having a beer at the end of the night. I don't, they weren't friends, but they were professionals that worked together. And, you know, to me, this is one of the issues and angles that I constantly uh, bring up to young talent is an example of hard work and an example of being real because they didn't like each other. And right. so many of the promos that you heard, man, they they were shooting with each other in a lot of ways. They made it real and you felt it. So uh, that's why I, I was saying compared to what, because to me, it's one of the just angles and, and, and it's one of the rivalries that does live on kind of like Austin McMahon. And I do look at rock and triple H as is, is being early on with this. And it carried over to the WWE championship after the fact, even many years later, when rock came back from Hollywood, they had a little face off backstage. The, the audience erupted for it. Um, I think that people do remember it for me, at least it was a big part of the attitude era. Cause right underneath Steve and Mr. McMahon, you had that rock, Triple H deal rumbling the entire time. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the main event. This has been something that we talked a little bit about in our Vince Russo episode, just because he was really frustrated with the way this match was put together. Steve Austin is going to retain the WWF title, pinning the undertaker in just under 21 minutes earlier in the show. Undertaker did an interview saying that Kane wouldn't interfere in the match and he was going to win the title on his own. 
Meltzer would say a great effort in a very good match. Austin got shaken up early when it appeared they bumped heads on a collision. At one point he was bleeding from the mouth and even coughed up blood. It says undertaker was showing his limitations because of his bad ankle and being too heavy that he tires quickly. He says the undertaker looked really gassed about 13 minutes in ultimately though, uh, we're going to see undertaker do the rope walk, but when he comes off with the sledge, Austin gives him a low blow and a stone cold stunner for the pin. Meltzer would say it told a good story. And after the match, undertaker grabbed the title belt and the teases that he's going to hit Austin with it, but instead he hands it to him. Three and a half stars. Um, Russo was critical of this and said that the match was good, but it could have been, it wasn't great and it could have been better and it would have done even bigger business. If one of these guys would have just committed to being a fucking heel, but both of the guys wanted to be baby faces. So there wasn't as much heat and some other folks have said in hindsight, Russo was right. What say you? I agree with Russo. It would have had a lot more cachet if the undertaker at least was showing heel tendencies going into it. Right. In my opinion, it would have made the match a little bit easier to work. Right. With a, with a heel on a baby face. Steve, look, Steve's not going to be the baby face at this point. He, they're just, he could have you mean Steve's somebody not in be times the, square. He said baby face. You mean heel. I'm sorry. I mean a heel. Steve could have merged someone in times square and they would have cheered him on. It wouldn't have mattered. He was just that over. There was nothing you could do to turn him heel during this period. Why do you think that, um, for whatever reason, Undertaker didn't want to do that? Well, it wasn't just Undertaker. It was Vince. It was Vince McMahon who really wanted to protect both attractions. He wanted to protect the Undertaker as a baby face and Steve as a baby face. Felt that the, the two going after the championship. That was also something that Steve and undertaker really fought for. They felt that the championship meant enough that why wouldn't undertaker want to be champion. And I agree with that part of it. However, when you're trying to sell something to the masses, um, it's easier to understand when you have a good guy and you have a bad guy also for your crowd reaction there. They really want both guys to win when they're both baby faces. So you don't have somebody to go, come on, Steve, kick his ass. It's like, okay, hey, that was a good one, Steve. Oh, that was a good one, Taker. That wasn't the emotion in it. Right. And that's what it was missing was the emotion of, I want Steve to kick his ass. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it just was kissing your sister in a lot of ways. How much kissing of your sister did you do? I didn't have a sister. But if you would have. I'm from Texas. I'm not from Alabama. Oh, fuck you. You're the one who used the analogy. Hey, so what's the reaction backstage when Austin gets knocked out? He said that, you know, it's when their heads collided. Was it obvious to you? You're probably watching on a monitor in the back. Did you know right then? Uh Oh, no. And I did. I didn't even really notice it here. When, it, when I went back and watched it, to be honest with you, I, I really didn't. You know, the, the, uh, just even, even thinking of that, you talk about where I was, cause I was running around with a headset all over the place. I, I hated when they came back with the rock afterwards and you see my happy ass there, you know, screaming for the Undertaker and, you know, rocks walking backstage. I got a camera and everything on them and Bruce and Patter. Undertaker, we need you, Gorilla. God, come on, let's go. 
Um, I hate that stuff. Let me ask you this. I, I don't know how this popped in my mind, but there's a phrase that's used whenever, you know, there's some sort of combat sport and one of the guys is dazed from a blow, but he's still standing. And I'm talking about queer street and they say, oh, he's on queer street. Where the fuck does that come from? Like where, I have no idea. but you've heard it before. Like everybody used to use it. I mean, obviously it's not PC and you don't use it now, but I mean, I don't think it has anything to do with that. It's just, what, what do you think about the phrase? Like that's what well, means you're out of it. I mean, it means that you're just, you know, kind of going on instinct. Yeah. You're out, you're out on your feet or whatever. It's yeah. just, it's such a fucking weird phrase to me. And or how about getting your Nick dick doc stiff? Uh, well, see down in Alabama, they say, um, knock his dick in the dirt, which is another one of those where I'm, I don't. I mean, I guess that means knock him out and he falls face four. I don't and he falls down. Okay. That see, that one makes more sense to me than, uh, he knocked his dick stiff. <laughs> well, because to me, it you, would be out of a girl knocked your dick stiff. All right. Roll tide. Yeehaw. Well, I mean, a guy could too. I'm not here to judge, but you probably don't need any help with any of that. If you just use blue chew, right? There you go. Uh, so let's talk about, um, the Russo thing. He says, this is really the first real argument he had with McMahon. Do you remember there being a big to do between the two of them about who should be baby and who should be heel and just the direction of this? And was this one of those moments where Vince dug his heels in just because he didn't want to let loose? Um, I don't really know. I wasn't privy to any argument that they had. It may have been something that Russo felt strongly about and shared with McMahon, but it was something that we asked over the course of the build for this. It's like, okay, who the hell's babyface? Who's the heel? And Vince was, it's about the championship. And I know that Undertaker felt that he didn't need to be a heel for this, that he should want to be the champion. That was the prevalent feeling from all three guys, Vince McMahon, Steve and undertaker, that this was about the championship. And this was about the two big dogs, the baddest guys in the yard, you know, fighting it out. You look at the, the chair and the advertisement for the whole thing. And one of them's got a piece of the empire state building. The other one's got a piece of the statue of Liberty coming after each other, like Godzilla and Mothra, but, or King Kong, but it was, I just felt it would have been more if, if you had somebody to hate, you know, it's been, um, a weird ride to get here, um, with the whole backstory between these two, but in the end, there are two baby faces. What was the, um, what do you think of the, the buildup for this match? You know, because you've got Austin in a hearse challenging him to a fight and you know, there were the tag titles involved for a little bit and the, you know, so much of the build was, is Kane going to get involved and his undertaker going to go to the dark side. There was a lot of that buildup. There was no payoff to it. That's where it just became confusing. It was, you kept wanting to get that payoff. Kane comes out and undertaker points for him to go to the back. He turns around and goes to the back. There just wasn't a lot of, uh, as Jr. would say, sizzle. You had the steak, but we just needed more sizzle. Sometimes you got too much sizzle, and you can't find the damn steak. 
here we head to state. It's Philip Mignon. Well, just didn't have much season. What would you rank this SummerSlam? To me, this is not top five. I would have to agree with that. I thought it was a good show, but I didn't think it was a great show. The yeah. garden here. Here's the other thing. Drove me fucking nuts. Hard camera shot. Yeah. Shooting into the entrance. Well, I, I actually like that because it's I different. It. I knew you would hate it, but I like it because it's different, but you got people walking back there the whole time in front of your set. You got the guy that's the usher with his damn arm on the thing. Just kind of watching with his leg crossed. Uh, it, it just, it, it looks unprofessional. Look like shit. Wow. Hated it. Tell, Hated me, it. tell me how you really feel. Holy shit. God, it just, it drove me nuts in the garden. These guys would think we're, we're doing a damn television show. Go around. You don't need to walk through there. Chat me up. JR makes some sort of comment here in the match that says he's never heard a champion get such a response in Madison square garden as Austin did when he came out. Obviously Austin's the most over guy in the business at this time. You were there for his run and for Hogan's run. When Austin got put in the hall of fame, Vince called Austin the greatest superstar in WWE history. Gun to your head. Who's bigger Austin or Hogan? Not everybody else's opinion, your opinion. Long-term probably Hogan. I mean, you know, you can, you can take Steve and Steve is going to blend in where Hulk is going to be, you know, he's Hulk Hogan. He hasn't, he's got the, the Fu Manchu. He's got the, the blonde locks and everything. And Steve is every man, uh, badass. And if you were to put, but if you were to take them and go dollars and, and who drew and who sold the most merchandise and, and who was the guy that took us into the next millennium, that was stone cold, Steve Austin. So you talk about overall in 50 years, I think they're going to be viewed as along with guys like the rock and John Cena. I think those guys are going to be in that argument too. Let's briefly touch on the night after SummerSlam. They're in New Haven, Connecticut, 7,600 fans, $148,000 gate at the shotgun tapings. JR presented Bart Gunn with golden gloves for his award for winning the brawl for all. And Bart challenged anyone in the world to face him under those rules. It's interesting that this goes down on raw, but the, uh, the presentation shotgun. Huh? That's a fresh. Also, interestingly enough, there's a dark match here where Funaki and men's Tao beat Julio Sanchez and Steve Carino. Uh, we also see, you know, an interview with Vince McMahon calling the undertaker stupid for not allowing Kane to be involved. And that's going to set some stuff up, but there was a segment where Tyler Ali Singh would be on this show with Abu. And he said, Abu has done nothing for three days, but eat sardines and never brushed his teeth and offered $500 for any woman who would French kiss him for five seconds. A woman in the crowd jumps up and down and her top comes off and she doesn't put it back on very quickly. She gets picked. They start French kissing and Singh gets distracted and his count five. He gets to five, but they keep kissing. Finally, they stopped. Um, she said, or eventually the crowd starts chanting, show your tits. So she lifts her top three times and Abu starts kissing her breasts. Eventually Undertaker and Kane show up and choke slam Singh and Abu. 
what the fuck is this? You'd have to ask Vince Russo. Oh, that, you know, that was going back. I remember that Tiger Ali stuff with Babu and, and it was terrible eating the boogers, which were gummy bears or gummy worms actually that we made into boogers. Um, it, it was a cheap ripoff of the million dollar man, uh, an Indian million dollar man that nobody cared about an Indian million dollar man. That's what it was. All right, let's go to, uh, some rapid fire questions, but before we do, uh, I guess we should do a question right here. And the question is, have you pre-ordered Starcast on fight? I feel like we haven't talked about this enough, Bruce, but we've actually got an incredible contest. Have you heard about the contest we're doing for Starcast on fight right now? What the hell kind of contest are you doing, Conrad? So check this out. If you go ahead and pick up Starcast on fight right now at fight.tv forward slash Starcast, we're going to give you a chance to be automatically entered. And if you've already ordered, you're already entered. One lucky winner is going to rent is going to win round trip airfare to Chicago for two, three nights in a hotel stay. That's right. In a suite. And when you get there, Wait. we're getting you two platinum passes to Starcast. That's sold out. You can't get those. You can't buy them. We're also going to get you every official meet and greet, even the stuff that says it's sold out. You get it and it costs you $0 as if that weren't enough. And don't you think it ought to be, we're also getting you an eat and greet. Every time there's an eat and greet, you're going to have a ticket. So you won't have to buy a lot of food. Your food's on us and you're not just eating with your buddy. You're eating with a wrestler like Kevin Sullivan or Ron Simmons or Jeff Jarrett or whoever, but as if that wasn't enough. You've got VIP tickets to the after party. You've got a swag bag from Starcast merchandise, but maybe best of all, certainly best of all, front row tickets to all in. Not front row, lower level, front row on the floor. You can't even buy these things. They sold out immediately. And these are the best seats you could possibly get in the front row. And this prize pack, probably worth, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten thousand $10,000, something like that. It's yours for free. If you win the drawing, we're going to draw for it on the 27th. So the clock is ticking. You want to make sure that you go ahead and do two things. Pick up the show right now at fight.tv forward slash starcast, and then follow us on Twitter at starcast 18. We're going to give you a link to where you can watch us draw this thing live on the 27th. This is the place to be. It's fight.tv forward slash starcast. Bruce, is this the greatest contest in the history of our great sport? As Tony Schiavone might say, I don't know how the hell you do that. Well, I'm not sure That's crazy. it's everything you need. You're going to be all in on everything all in this Labor Day weekend. Just go to fight.tv forward slash Starcast fight is F I T E dot TV. And there's two R's in Starcast. Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do some rapid fire questions here for SummerSlam. And if you've got some questions for us for next week, when we cover the very first SmackDown, then you can ask them right now at Pritchard show on Twitter. We've also got pictures up of the Debbie Reynolds hotel right now over on Instagram at Pritchard show. So you can see what it looked like before Vince McMahon bought it. And then we've even got some pictures of the demolition. So roll tight on that, not ax and smash, but it comes, oh. all right. Sean wants to know, does Bruce hate ICP? Like almost everyone else in pro wrestling seems to, I don't think everybody in pro wrestling seems to hate ICP. I look at ICP as great businessmen that were able to take something uh, and make their childhood dreams come true and 
you know, make something huge. I, I respect the hell out of them for that. The similarities between them and wrestling too are just very apparent, but yeah, they, they it, made something out of nothing. Tony wants to know, uh, here it is. Here's the question. Was the haircut to Finkel a rib? No, the haircut Finkel was not a rib. Uh, Brian wants to know, Bruce, was there a lot of backstage disappointment at the match quality of the main event? Obviously Austin did the best he could given the circumstances, but this was built up huge and just didn't deliver in the ring. I disagree with that. I thought the match was fine. It, it was a good match. Nothing wrong with the match. The story is not what held up. And that's why emotionally you felt it wasn't a good match. Jeb wants to know, do you think there should have been a brother love dude, love tag team hashtag team love. We should have got the straps and never lost them. Uh, Lewis wants to know how was the ACDC highway to hill song chosen for the event and who picks the theme song for each pay-per-view? Great question. And you know what I want to know? How much did you pay to license it? Uh, not a whole lot. That was a, a sweet deal with ACDC. Um, sometimes these, these things just come up, but if you had a dollar for every time I suggested an ACDC song is, is a theme song from hell's bells to highway to hell to back in black. Uh, we'd be a rich man. And, and the delight on my end, that we actually got to do highway to hell for a theme and got to hear that all the way through a promotion was positively tremendous. And Vince is a big ACDC fan. So that helps as well. Uh, Yayo wants to know, do you have any Yayo. good stories about Cabrera and Savinovich, the Spanish announcers? They were on TV forever. Carlos Cabrera did radio in New Jersey. Um, somebody that we had to bring in and teach play by play, but uh, a great guy. And Hugo uh, is actually, people always think Hugo is Puerto Rican, but Hugo is actually Ecuadorian. Well, and I was reminded of this just recently. Okay. Um, Charles wants to know who shot the badass promo of Austin and undertaker walking through the streets. Uh, let's see at that time, probably would have been Sahadi or Chris chambers. Uh, Joshua wants to know how did Vince feel about the Chris Warren band? We liked them. You know, they, they were our guys. They, they had, you know, done that song for us. And that was something we owned and that Jim Johnston worked with him on and he liked him. Uh, Jason wants to know, did the undertaker have to remind Austin of certain spots he needed to, since he had received a concussion? Probably. So, I mean, Taker probably led him through the whole, through the rest of it, but after a while it just becomes instinct and second nature. Uh, Kyle wants to know, I think this was the first show WWF did a post show on the home shopping network. How did that come to be? I love the show and it was pretty cool post show. We got some people who were even tweeting out, uh, pictures, which were kind of fun of exclusives that were bought that night on the home shopping network that weren't offered again. Holy cow. I don't even remember that for, for the life of me. I don't remember. I remember doing stuff with the home shopping network and I remember doing, this was the first one that we did. God, that's, that's scary. I do remember doing stuff with them because it was hot and we could do items specific for the pay-per-views that would be like a, Hey, if you order right now and just do limited editions, uh, it's inter I didn't realize this was the first one. That's pretty cool. What does, um, 
What did Tenta think about the mask and the oddity gimmick? Well, the the whole idea was for him to have a huge protrusion out of the side of the mask that looked like an abnormality uh, in the head. Vince actually pitched pitched it as being a serious gimmick when we first brought Golga in, and it just morphed into the oddities. Tenta didn't have a problem with it. It was during a time that he just wanted to work. Well, nothing wrong with that. Uh, John wants to know how many times do you have to tell the ushers and security to get out of the hard camera view with them just hanging around the entrance? Thank you, John. Too many times. And, you know, I remember having the meeting with those guys before earlier in the night. I said, guys, this is pay-per-view. I know you're always here, but you can't be here. We need somebody on, on each side, keeping people from walking through here. And the guys that were okay, don't worry. Those were the ones that were the worst offenders. Hated it. Hated it. Uh, chat me up about, um, Chuck John's question. What were Vince's thought on triple H at the time? Was he high on him plans going forward? What did Vince see on him here in 1998? I think the same thing that, you know, he sees with him today. I mean, there was a lot of potential there and he was a hell of a talent that worked his ass off. So it was somebody that he wanted to invest in. Um, Juan says, I know that road dog initially called gun Mr. Ass as an abbreviation of badass. Whose idea was it to totally transform him into a full blown Mr. Ass with the name and theme song and tights. God, that was a, that was a Vince McMahon idea. He'll be Mr. Ass. Okie doke. Yeah, that was it. I don't think that was one of the better ideas though. Kevin wants to know, in your opinion, has the intercontinental title felt this important since this match? Amazing. Yeah, I do. I, I definitely think that the intercontinental championship has, has always been important. I think it's important today. Jacob Warren wants to know if you could talk about the process of the glass wall for Austin's entrance. It was the same effect used at WrestleMania 13. And I believe even for diesel at WrestleMania 11. The, well, the process is simply there's it's. I don't know that it's sugar glass, but it's a certain type of glass with an explosive in the middle of it. So it's a pyro charge that goes off to make the glass shatter. And that's it in a nutshell. And I thought it was pretty damn cool. And when that glass went off for Austin, the place exploded. Uh, Brian wants to know who produced and came up with the mankind Vince McMahon backstage segment. He apparently was a big fan of it too. Well, that was something that Vince McMahon probably, probably Russo, but it was, uh, as best I remember, it's probably something that Vince McMahon would just knock out pretty damn quick. Cause it was him in it. Let's do it. Come on. Ian Albert says I was at the event. Was there any backstage heat for playing the new age outlaws music too early after a near fall? It totally took the air out of the arena as the finish was clearly given away. Did they play that? I don't remember that at all. Uh, Corey wants to know, how does Bruce feel about the upcoming wrestling shows that aren't WWE going into Madison square garden, the site of this show. And of course, what he's referencing is that new Japan and ring of honor have been able to not only secure the building, but sell it out. I think it's good for the business. And I, you know, New York's a big city. The WWE has you know, uh, another, 
place in Barclays Center. I don't know what the situation is between them and Barclays Center or them and Madison Square Garden. But competition's good, and competition in the biggest city in the world is good. It keeps everybody on their toes, and as long as people are fighting and the business is drawing and healthy, that's good for everybody. Well, it's good for everybody that you have tuned in this week, and we hope that you tune in next week. We've got this show up and early and ad-free on Patreon, and we're going to do the same next week. You get lots of um, early shows and bonus content. We're going to have some behind-the-scenes footage of your trip to New York. You're going to be posting some stuff. I'll be posting some stuff. And we've got some bonus content picked out. And I got to say, man, we've had some interesting stuff picked out. We recently had... A match that you and I watched together from 06. Like, why the hell did they pick this? But after we saw it, it made total sense. It's a big show and the McMahons against DX in a cage. And they're bleeding everywhere and shoving heads up people's asses. Uh, lots of bonus content coming your way. If you haven't already, go out of your way. Check it out. Patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. But there's still a little time left for you to join us. Gramercy Theater. Hook it up right now. Make it happen. BrucePritchard.com. We've got surprises we can't tell you, but we've also got a return guest that, in my opinion, is the greatest guest in the history of all of our live shows. And Bruce, you're working on some, and I am too, some surprises from folks that we never thought would be there, right? Yes, I am. And you never know who's going to show up at any of our live events. And the only way to really experience it is be there live and check it out. BruceBritchard.com. See you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Starcast on fight. Bruce Pritchard. Oh, I have to say that too? Yes, you have to say that. That's the most important part. Yeah. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.